Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 1, continuing the series through the Gospel of John, and we are this evening up to verse 35. So John 1, beginning at verse 35 through verse 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In verse 35, we read that John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples who then decided to follow Jesus as his disciples. These men end up calling Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. This reminds me of a Christian song that I sang as a child from time to time, the lyrics of which go like this, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And though that song doesn't mention the words disciple or discipleship, those concepts are implied. The the song is about deciding to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. So what does that mean? What is involved in being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? In Jesus' day, disciple was the name given to the formal relationship of a student to a particular teacher. Disciple was a learner, and yet the relationship of a disciple to his teacher was far more involved than today's students going to class and listening to a teacher lecture, which is probably why rarely, if at all, are students today called disciples. There's just not the same kind of teacher-student relationship as we find occurring in Jesus' day. Back then, to be a disciple was no small thing. If you were a disciple, your teacher or your rabbi was essentially your master in all of life. A disciple would live with his master, his teacher, in order to learn from him and copy him in all areas of life, which meant that your teacher was not simply someone that delivered lectures on an academic subject for you to listen to a few hours per day or week, but your teacher was someone who was teaching you by example and teaching you in every moment of his life because you would follow him around as he taught, as he interacted with people. And of course, you would learn from his teaching, but more than that, you would see how he handled the challenges of life, and it was expected that you would emulate your master. It's also expected that the disciple would serve his master in selfless, sometimes even menial ways, including running errands or doing whatever else his master might ask. It was understood that the disciple wanted to become a teacher himself one day, 
And so he would be assigned various ways of testing his gifts and practicing his own teaching, but all under his teacher's oversight. In the end, it was expected that the disciple would become like his master in knowledge as well as in character. The verses before us, we find Jesus taking on his first two disciples. And what's important to recognize is that not only the 12 apostles who are the ones who became Jesus' disciples, in all ages, all who follow Jesus, all who look to him as Lord and Savior are disciples. Remember, the calling of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, which means this text has relevance to us and to our calling to be witnesses. And so I've taken these verses as offering to us instruction regarding discipleship, and so I've taken as the theme, becoming a disciple. And I've developed this theme under three points. First of all, how it all begins. Second, what it involves. And third, what it produces or what it does and where it leads. So first, how it all begins. We see that in a rather simple way, discipleship begins with being introduced to Jesus. In our text, it was John the Baptist who did the introducing. It all began with two of John's own disciples who happened to be Andrew and John the Apostle. Now, Andrew is named in verse 40. The other disciple is not named But there are good reasons to believe that he is the Apostle John, one of the sons of Zebedee. It's a common thing in John's gospel as a mark of his humility that he veils his identity. And so we believe that it was Andrew and John who first followed Jesus as disciples. I want to draw your attention to the fact that Andrew and John were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 35 tells us that John was standing with two of his disciples and that they were John's disciples means that they were looking to him for teaching and for wisdom and for life coaching and what it means to be a faithful believer in all of life. And we see in this role of John yet another example of the prominence that he held in the work of God's kingdom. It provides another example of how well-respected John was and how he very easily could have promoted his own position and prestige if his goal had been self-promotion. Actually, it was not a common thing for a disciple to switch masters. Normal course of action was for a potential disciple to indicate his desire to follow a particular well-known and respected teacher, and if he was able to pass the interview process, and was granted permission to follow after him, and then did so, it was understood that he was to be loyal to that master teacher. It's not at all an acceptable practice to bail on your current teacher on a whim in order to follow after another. Being a disciple involved a commitment to learn from your teacher for the rest of your life, which makes what John the Baptist does unique. What happened took place according to verse 35 the next day. So what happened the day before? Well, the previous day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After that profound announcement, John testified to how he did not always know who Jesus was, but how he had come to know him to be the Son of God and Messiah who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It is the next day of our text that John is standing with two of his disciples as Jesus walks by. 
And John takes the opportunity to announce again, behold, the Lamb of God. And we are told that this time, two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. And what is striking, first of all, is John's willingness to give up disciples to the one who is more worthy than him of the title of rabbi and master. John's announcement was meant to direct his disciples to the preeminence of Christ. There's no doubt about John's insistence about this. He, he was known to have said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And he had humbly remarked that the strap of Jesus' sandal, um, he was not worthy to untie. John's role, remember, was to be a forerunner to Christ. His self-professed goal was to reveal Jesus to Israel. His goal was that all might believe in Jesus through him. It would have been out of place for John to have hoarded disciples to himself when one who was much greater was in their midst and who had now begun his ministry. So John was not hesitant to point his disciples to the one who was much more worthy to be their master. And that takes humility. That takes an understanding of the greatness of Jesus as a master and teacher worthy of disciples. We notice as well that John's first announcement of Jesus as the Lamb of God met no recorded response, no recorded anyway response from his disciples or from any others who were present. We read of no one interested in following after Jesus then. Uh, verse 35 tells us that on the next day, something was taking place again, either John making the same announcement about Jesus as the Lamb of God again, or John casually encountering Jesus again, or John is again standing with his disciples when Jesus is encountered. What I'm getting at is that someone is to think that these two disciples were with John at the time of the first announcement of Jesus as the Lamb, and now again at the second time that Jesus is announced to be the Lamb of God. And the application then is made that men do not always choose to follow Jesus right away. And that's certainly true to reality, right? That often the call to come and follow after Jesus as a disciple, it can, that call can come again and again before finally a decision is made to follow after him. But regardless of whether or not Andrew and John heard the announcement the day before, it remains true that there is no record of any positive response by anyone. And we have good reason to suppose that Andrew and John, being John's disciples, were with him the day before. At the very least, there were people who heard John's testimony and nothing happened. But now the next day, the same announcement is made and there is movement. And this is true to life, is it not? People are called to follow after Christ. The gospel is presented, and Jesus is declared to be the glorious Son of God who has come to save us from sin. There's a call to repent of sin and to follow after Jesus, believing upon him for eternal life. And often the hearers of this message are not interested, and there's no response. Or there is a decided negative response in refusing to be his disciple. It also happens that there is a sudden interest in following after Jesus when before there was none. And this is because becoming a disciple of Jesus is not just a matter of making a decision to do so. 
And that's where that children's song about deciding to follow Jesus falls short. For yes, all people who become disciples of Jesus Christ make a decision to follow Jesus. The will is certainly involved in becoming a disciple. But becoming a disciple involves more than a simple human decision. For why do some people decide to follow Jesus while others don't? Why was there no response to John's testimony one day and then a very noticeable response the next? Well, this is due to the work of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, when a sinner suddenly makes a good decision in relation to Jesus Christ, that is because God is at work to make him will to do the right thing. When you decided to follow Jesus, yes, you decided to do that. But it wasn't you by yourself that decided to do it. You did it because the Holy Spirit opened your heart to see the worthiness of Jesus being your Savior and Master. So becoming a disciple of Jesus begins with knowing who he is. John highlights Jesus as the Lamb of God. He is the one that God ordained to be our sacrifice for sin. As the Lamb, Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's anointed. He is the one that God has appointed to be our prophet, priest, and king. In these offices, Jesus shows himself to be worthy of disciples. Think of it as a prophet. He is the very word of God, which is what John has already said in introducing Jesus beginning of this chapter. He is the word of God. His life and his teaching are an inerrant and infallible testimony to God's truth. And can you imagine being a disciple of a teacher who knows all of God's truth, knows it perfectly, who lives it out perfectly? That's who Jesus is. As priest, Jesus is himself our lamb, giving himself in sacrifice for sin. He gave himself to the death of the cross on our behalf. Can you imagine following a master who is so loving and caring that he would give himself to death for your sake? Well, Jesus has done that. He is that kind of master. As king, Jesus protects us. He reigns over us with the very power of God. For he, as the word and as the lamb, is not only with God, but he is God. Can you imagine being the disciple of someone who is actually divine and who is thus able to protect you from all harm, who is able to give you the blessings of his eternal heavenly kingdom? Well, this is what Jesus does. So discipleship begins with being pointed to consider who Jesus is. And have you been struck with Jesus' greatness that compels you to associate yourself with him and follow him? So you are on your way to becoming a disciple of Jesus. Which brings us then to our second point, what it involves. In this point, I want to direct you to what our text teaches concerning what becoming a disciple of Jesus involves. What we see in Jesus is a master who is very welcoming. As I think of a normal disciple-teacher relationship like the Apostle Paul originally Saul had with the Pharisee Gamaliel, I can envision a million young men wanting to have that great Gamaliel as their teacher. And so there must have been a vetting process. 
I imagine Paul was interviewed regarding his credentials, his intelligence, his academic accomplishments and, and, and potential, as well as his willingness to submit and learn. And he was allowed, he was permitted, he was invited by special invitation to become Gamaliel's disciple only after that great master was convinced that Saul would become great in his own right. That was the norm for how these things worked. What happened with Jesus was not the norm. And I say this because Jesus was very willing to have these men follow after him without much of an interview process. He didn't ask about their credentials. He didn't ask about their academic accomplishments. He didn't ask the other expected formalities. Now, it's not that Jesus has no concern for who they are and what they want. His vetting process involves asking them a very profound question when he asks, what are you seeking? And notice the question is not about whom they are seeking. They know something of Jesus. He has been endorsed now by John the Baptist as someone important, and that's significant. But at first glance, this question from Jesus sounds casual. It sounds rather incidental, but it's actually rather profound. What are these disciples seeking? Are they seeking prestige? Are they seeking power, wealth, knowledge? Or are they seeking the removal of sin by this Lamb of God? Are they seeking salvation? Are they seeking knowledge and wisdom that is from above? If so, why? This question gets at the deeper question of what they really want in life. And Jesus doesn't demand an immediate answer and then grade them on their answer, but he does immediately confront them with the reality that to be a disciple of Jesus requires more than simply following a great man with no consideration of the reasons why. Following Jesus as a disciple requires that you and I understand on some level what is really important in life. If what you want is earthly greatness, including prestige and wealth, then you had best go elsewhere. If you want knowledge so that you can be smarter than other people and surpass other people, then you had better follow someone else. If what you want is religious teaching that will make you good and enable you to earn your own way to heaven, then Jesus is not the rabbi for you. If you want a life of comfort and ease, free of persecution and suffering. Well, Jesus doesn't accept disciples who are averse to suffering. Now, you don't have to love suffering, but you have to be willing to suffer for his sake as a necessary part of serving him and others and as a way to grow in character. If what you want is eternal life through the forgiveness of your sins, then Jesus is the one worth following. If you want to know and to serve God, Jesus is the one. If what you want is to be a part of Christ's spiritual kingdom and to have a share in inheritance that is all about enjoying fellowship with God, then he is the master for you. If what you long for is to be loved and cared for by Jesus as your divine savior who is willing to give his life for you, then he is worth following. If you want a life of spiritual growth with eternal meaning and significance, and serving him, then he is the master for you. And so Jesus is, is getting at all of this by asking these two men what they are seeking. And yet we notice 
that Jesus doesn't insist that they have all of this figured out from the beginning. In fact, we don't read them giving any answer. They respond respectfully by addressing him as rabbi, which means teacher. Also, their question for Jesus that follows, where are you staying, seems to center on a desire to know Jesus better. It's been suggested that at this point, they're wanting to get Jesus off by himself in order that they might ask him questions. I'm inclined to think that they want to interview him because they're not entirely sure about being disciples of this Jesus. They want to know more about him. At the same time, their desire to see where he is staying could be taken even at this point as an indirect way of asking if they can live with him as disciples would with their masters. At the very least, there is a genuine interest in Jesus. And notice, though, that they don't ask if they can stay with Jesus. Their concern, their, their question is and concerns where he is staying. And I can't help but wonder if they're wanting to know something of Jesus' social status. If they're allowed to follow him, well, what neighborhood does he live in? What kind of house does he have? If he lives with someone, is it someone they know, perhaps someone of renown? Now their question may be as simple and as innocent as just wanting to follow him home where they can pursue a conversation with him that might develop into a long-term relationship. There are certainly some unknowns here. But what is striking to me is how welcoming Jesus is to these men. His immediate reply to their question of where he is staying is, come and you will see. And they take him up on the offer and they saw where he was staying and they ended up staying with him the rest of that day. But I would point out there seems to be a deeper layer to Jesus' words than a surface conversation about seeing where Jesus was staying and joining him there, following Jesus, responding to his call to come and see, can be and will in John's gospel, we will see more clearly. This is the language of discipleship. And the application for today is that the message of who Jesus is continues to be spread through the testimony of those who know him. And Jesus continues to call people to come to him, to come with their sins, to come for forgiveness, to come with faith, to come with the desire to follow after him, to listen to him, to obey him, to follow his example, to go with him through life and eventually to be with him in glory. And we know that when those disciples saw where Jesus was staying, there was certainly nothing of earthly grandeur to attract them to him. Later, Jesus will say that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's interesting, those words were spoken to a scribe who had told Jesus that he would follow him wherever he would go. And Jesus' words were meant to be a check on what this man was seeking. For if he was seeking earthly comfort and pleasures, to follow Jesus was only going to end in disappointment. For Andrew and John, their staying with Jesus did not deter them from discipleship. And in fact, we will learn of how their relationship with Jesus only grew over time. I'm struck with the welcoming nature of Jesus to disciples who are not great in the world's eyes and who are not even required to be utterly convinced of Jesus' credentials to be allowed to follow him. And I am reminded in this of several things. I'm reminded of the words of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and following, 
that, quote, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In the eyes of the world, all 12 of the disciples of Jesus were men of no import. And I'm reminded as well of the value of the faith of a mustard seed. I'm reminded of how the Gospels portray the disciples of Jesus as men who are weak in faith, weak in knowledge, having in the end very little understanding of who Jesus is as the Son of God and Messiah. In fact, even after Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, they thought he was gone. They thought it was over. They thought that he was going to bring his kingdom, and they were disappointed and they were discouraged. And yet they had enough knowledge and genuine faith to have followed him in life and to be discouraged after his death exactly because they didn't have anyone else to turn to for eternal life. Even today, to become a disciple of Jesus doesn't require an intense interview process. There are no necessary academic credentials. There is no required level of income or status in society. There is no required proof of future success. There is no requirement that you have a strong faith. All that is required is a looking to Jesus as your teacher, responding to his call to come and follow after him. Now, naturally, there's some content to what must be believed about Jesus. What you are seeking is important. If you are seeking forgiveness of your sins and eternal life and a kingdom to come, and you are going to Jesus as the Lamb of God for these things, you have at least the beginnings of genuine saving faith. We see the content of Andrew's faith in his testimony to his brother Simon Peter. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. The word Messiah comes from the Old Testament Hebrew Christ comes from the New Testament Greek, both mean anointed one. And Andrew is testifying that Jesus is the promised Savior of God's people, the one anointed by God himself to be our prophet, priest, and king in order to save us from our sins. He is the promised seed of the woman. He is the promised son of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the promised son of David who would reign eternally over God's kingdom people. Now, Andrew didn't understand everything about how the Messiah would be our Savior, but by faith he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And that Andrew testified to his brother Simon Peter regarding who Jesus is brings us then to our third point of what discipleship does and what it leads to. First, I want to draw your attention to the response of Andrew. After spending but a short time with Jesus, he tells his brother Simon about Jesus with the intention that Simon also become a disciple of Jesus. And so what I'm highlighting at this point is that when you become a disciple of Jesus, you tell others about him so that they too can follow after him. Discipleship produces witnesses. If you are convinced of who Jesus is, and are convinced of the importance and of the blessings of following after him, you will want others to know and follow Jesus too. 
And the beautiful thing about becoming a disciple of Jesus is that there is always an opening for those who hear a disciple's testimony and want to join in following after Jesus. Jesus, think of it, he doesn't turn away anyone, anyone who is interested in being his disciple. He doesn't ever say, well, you know what, I've got too many disciples to handle right now. Come back at a later time after some of my disciples have graduated, or I'm looking for better disciples, potential disciples than you. No, the thing is, the discipleship with the people that he has, it never ends. There is no graduation. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will always be a learner sitting at his feet. So will everyone else who has followed after Jesus. Every disciple who has ever been is still a disciple. Now that sounds overwhelming, does it not? It sounds impossible. How could Jesus handle that? But he can because he's God. And because he is able to minister to us through his spirit. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done in this life. What level of importance you have in this life. Jesus takes as his disciples any who seek his salvation and come to him in faith. Notice in closing a second product of discipleship, which is that you will be changed. You will be changed in order to take on a role of service in the church. Those who follow after Christ as disciples become like Jesus. Their character, their attitudes, your perspectives, your values all change in conformity to righteousness and holiness. And this principle is evident in Jesus' prediction that Simon will be called Cephas, which means Peter. When it says in verse 42 that Jesus looked at Simon, the word refers to a close examination that's not just a mere glance. But Jesus took in Peter and then declared prophetically that Simon's name would become Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which means Peter, which is Greek for rock. And Peter eventually became a rock in the church of Jesus Christ, a foundational leader in the church who functioned as a rock for the church. And it was later his bold confession to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that indicated that Peter was ready to take on his role as a stable force in the building of the church of Jesus Christ. Some have also pointed to a change of character that took place to allow Peter to take on this role, namely, from an impulsive Simon to a man steadfast in his role as a disciple of Jesus, witnessing to Christ, giving his life to serving his master. You must also expect the same thing to happen to you. When you become a disciple of Christ by faith, your character, your life will be changed. You will become like Christ glory of God will become your life goal. Those who follow after Christ are changed forever for their good. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have introduced us to Christ, whether through the testimony of someone who first told us or through the reading of your scripture. Father, we thank you that we've been introduced and that we've been called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we, we ask that you would give us faith to look to Christ as our Lamb, 
that we would be looking to him for salvation and that we would be looking to him as, as disciples for the spiritual blessings that truly matter. And Father, we ask that you would make us like Christ, that you would truly change us, that you would work within us by your Holy Spirit, that we might more and more become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be witnesses, leading others to also become disciples of our Savior. Father, what a great privilege it is to be a disciple, to know Jesus as our master and as our teacher. Father, may we be forever grateful. May we be faithful disciples. And uh, may we, Lord, be those who point others to Christ, even as Andrew did to his brother. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.